One evening in the uh, year 1962, George Wright and one of his associates went into a local gas station. They found the place largely abandoned. Only one attendant was there staffing the place at this particular hour. And they accosted him in the little office adjacent to the gas pumps. They demanded money from him. They wanted everything in the cash register. And the man resisted. And so George Wright and his associate beat the man severely until he had a change of attitude. Until he was willing to give up the money that he had in the till and unlock it. They found inside just $75 in crumpled bills. And George Wright and his associate were so angry that they'd gone to all of this trouble for the sake of a mere $75 that George Wright's associate pulled out a gun and shot the guy at point blank range. And then they took what was there and they left. They went out. They bought a couple of cheeseburgers. They played shuffleboard. A short while later, George and his associate were found, were arrested for what they had done. They were subsequently tried. They were sent away for 30 years in prison. But George Wright was so indignant at the fact that he had been given this kind of a sentence, despite the fact that he wasn't the one that actually pulled that trigger, that he vowed he was going to escape. And so he set about planning and eventually hatched a plan in which he hotwired the warden's car and managed to escape and set out on what would become one of the historic fugitive journeys in all of criminal justice history. He managed to evade the police here in the United States for quite a while, uh, going from city uh, to town to countryside. He eventually hijacked an airplane bound from Miami and made it overseas. He went on from there to Algeria and France and Germany and Poland and eventually found his way to Portugal. And there he settled down. Along the way, George adopted uh, changed appearance, changed clothes. He changed his language. He changed his story in so many ways. And, and in, in these ways, he managed to change almost everything superficial about his life. So much so that the authorities could not find him, though they tried again and again. It was not until September the 26th, 2011, that the law finally caught up with George Wright, who was now living under the name of Jose Luis Jorge dos Santos in Portugal. What the Interpol folks did not know, however, is that George had actually been caught many years before that by the one whom the poet Francis Thompson once called the Hound of Heaven. And, and the puzzling thing that occurred in 2011 uh, was a great debate in uh, the courts of Portugal as to whether they would honor or not the request of the United States to extradite George Wright back to the U.S. for punishment there. And, and, and the difficulty was that while it was absolutely clear to the Portuguese authorities that, that Interpol had succeeded in capturing the right man, it was also equally clear that they had now captured someone who was not the same man. You see, long ago, 
God had somehow reached out to the heart of George Wright and found him. At least it would appear this way. George Wright joined a church in Portugal. He became baptized. He became a regular participant in the life of that community of faith. He went on and got married. He had two children. He raised these very healthy, normal, productive kids. George Wright went on to to, uh, serve in the community. He was known as the guy that cleaned up the graffiti on the walls of Lisbon voluntarily. He he was the man who, who went down and worked at the homeless shelter serving dinners. He was the guy that volunteered to help organize and renovate an outreach center for HIV positive children. He planted public flower gardens. He grew into a senior citizen, uh, one of the most revered people in the community. And in his 50 years of hiding, he did not amass so much as a single parking ticket. Not a single further offense in the course of his journey. Still a fugitive from the law, This lost man had been found by God many years before. He said, I've asked God to forgive me, and and I think he has. Human justice still demanded a stiff penalty from him. But divine grace had begun an amazing work in him. I tell you this story because it's a window into what Christians call the good news, literally gospel, the German word for it, good spiel, good news. Uh, It's a marvelous window into the reality of the news that Christians feel is their joy and the hope of the world. This amazing tiding that no matter how deeply we are lost in our sin, God never stops looking for us. God is in search of sinners. He's looking for people who have done terrible things like George Wright and his associate did on that particular night. He's also looking for people that are so blind and so self-righteous, they don't even have a clue that what they've done is wrong. God is looking for people who, in fact, have gotten so used to patterns of brokenness and of selfishness and of hard-heartedness that they're not even tuned into the sins of omission and commission that God sees every day and that wound his heart because he's holy. God is searching for people who don't even have a concept of sin, who think the word sin is some kind of weird religious fanatic kind of term that is, is totally outmoded. He's looking for people who, who, who actually believe that all of the issues we have in our time, our political struggles, our race relations, our difficulties with the environment, the stuff that's going on in your family and in your workplace, that all of this stuff can really be fixed by just tuning up our educational processes and improving our technology and just getting a few more people to think like we think. God is looking for those people. He's looking for people who are lost in one way or another. People who don't get that our fundamental problem is that we have lost our connection to the source of life himself. That that nothing is going to really get permanently a lot better until we restore the connection. The branches get reconnected to the vine that is the source of life. That that all of the, the negative passions that we experience now, the 
the envy, the anger, the pride, the greed, the lust, the selfishness of various kinds is because we've broken ourselves away from the one who is the source of holiness, of love, of all that we really most want in our clearest thinking moments in life. But the good news that Christians keep coming back to is that God has not given up on this race. Uh, God has not given up on this planet. He is looking for fugitives to this day, for people like George Wright and like me and like you, perhaps. He pursues us not to condemn us, but to justify us. Think, think of a right justified margin, right? He's seeking to align us, to realign us, to re-justify us with himself, to reestablish the connection that can be life-giving and renewing for us and for our world. This is how Jesus puts it. In perhaps his most famous statement of all, for God so loved this world that he gave, he sent his one and only son that whosoever believes in him, whoever puts their trust in him, whoever gives their life to him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's not just talking about pie in the sky when we die. He's talking about an eternal quality of life that we would want to have an infinite quantity. He's talking about a life like his. He's talking about life abundant. So that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have this eternal life. And then he adds a verse that's often left out when you hear this quoted, certainly at football games. This one's never mentioned on the placards. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. How often sometimes are Christians viewed as those who are condemning the world. Jesus says, God did not send his son to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Beloved, this, this idea, this idea is ultimately the concept of, of uh, justification by faith. Uh, this is the concept of salvation in an even larger sense. This is, this is the concept that we're trying to help in this series on getting the gospel. We're trying to look at that gospel message in all of its amazing dimensions. The gospel, as Korean evangelist Watchman Nee has said, the gospel begins not with do, but with done. The gospel d- begins not with what we have to do, with, with, with God you know, insisting us that we work harder, that we live better, that we improve ourselves, that we get going. The gospel doesn't begin there. It begins with what God has done. The gospel begins with the fact that the greatest justice in the universe has handed to you and to me a get-out-of-jail-free card. He knows what we've done. He knows all of our crimes. Again, the sins of commission or of omission. Um, he, he, he can look at a, at a nation that will spend, that spent more money on candy this weekend, right? Just think of the staggering dollars that went to candy and uh, in a world of hunger, of desperate hunger, he, he, he looks at that kind of a nation and, and those kind of people who don't even, it never even occurred to them that was a problem or an issue. And, and he, and he hands them a get out of jail free card. On the cross, Jesus pays the price fully for the penalty of our sin. 
He takes it all on himself. Uh, Jesus writes us a pardon. He, he handles us a, a sheet of paper that says that our debts are canceled. In fact, the words Jesus speaks on the cross, it, it, it is finished, was actually a, a term from an accounting term. Uh, to telestai literally meant debt canceled. It is finished. It's what the, 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 uh, the, the lender would write across the, the bill when he was canceling the debt uh, at the end. God has uh, canceled the debt, written us a pardon, handled us a get-out-of-jail-free card. He has offered us adoption papers into the most amazing family in the universe, a, a forever kind of family. He said, come, here are the papers for that. God has given us a a gigantic check, you know, those ones you see at the celebrity fundraisers, right? It's the biggest check in the world. And, it, and, it, and on it is written the most amazing amount of grace. It's from the universal bank of grace. And God has handed that to us. And all we have to do is cash it. All we have to do is sign on it. And it's ours. And it's ours. How do we do this? How do we make it ours? Well, Felicia and Eric walked us through that last week. They said it begins by admitting that you need it. That you need pardon. You need forgiveness. You need grace. You you need to be taken into the family. It begins by admitting you need it. Secondly, it means... It moves forward by believing, by believing that Christ's sacrifice for us is enough. That we're not going to justify ourselves on the basis of our good deeds. We're justified on the basis of his great self-giving love. And thirdly, it, it, it involves committing ourselves to following Jesus for life to entering onto a way of life. Salvation is not just a moment in time. It's a movement in our lives. Um, and we enter into it by, by going through this first important process of admitting and believing and committing that the Bible calls justification by faith. Uh, it's, the, it's the movement in which we get right with God again. We reconnect with the source again through the power of his forgiving love. Um, That's the crucial first step in the journey of salvation. But I want you to understand today that the gospel doesn't stop there. Um, In fact, this is just the entrance into the gospel life. Uh, The good news is gooder than you've known, is what I'm trying to say, okay? Um, Because once your sins have been forgiven... And you have committed yourself to following Christ. This connection you now have with God uh, leads to many other marvelous things. St. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Romans. Now that you have been freed from sin, the advantage you get is sanctification. And the end, the goal, is eternal life. Now that you've you've gotten right with God, you're aligned with God... Again, the advantage that will come from that is a process of sanctification whose end result is to give you this eternal quality of life. 
That's the second crucial idea that we're trying to drive home in our study of the gospel. Now, I want to think about that word sanctification with you. That is a big mouthful of a word, right? Sanctification. What does that really mean? Well, some of you will know that the the word sanctification comes from the, the Latin word sanctus, which means holy. If you're a from a Catholic background, you've heard that word before, sanctus. You've sung it. You've heard it said by the priest. It means holy. Sanctification is the process of making us holy, of making us holy. Now, holy, that word holy has got mixed connotations for a lot of us. You know, in our day and age, the word holy has fallen into disrepair and disuse. It's often got negative associations with it. You know, we think of somebody who's a holy roller. We think of somebody who's holier than thou. You know, very few people that I talk to uh, say that um, their ambition in life is to be holy uh, because of the assumption that if I'm holy, it means that I'm going to sort of not be very popular with my friends. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to have a very boring life. In reality, holiness is the most beautiful possible kind of life. Holiness is a purity of character. Holiness is a fruitfulness of being. Holiness is a, um, is a wonderful potency and a capacity for influence. Holiness is a purposeful way of living. Holiness is the quality of life you see in um, Pope Francis that some of us have met in people like Mama Maggie Gobran, one of our mission partners who spends her life, even though she's an aristocrat, caring for the poorest kids of Egypt. Holiness is what we see uh, most perfectly in Jesus Christ. Uh, It is the most beautiful way of life there is. You know, back in the day when I was um, struggling to um, figure out what I really believed about life, Um, it was seeing holiness in the lives of some Christians that I met that was the turning point for me. It actually was what led me to be just this much open to the possibility there might be a God, to to the possibility that maybe I needed that God. Um, I, I saw these people who reached out to me Um, I saw these people exhibiting uh, a love, a quality of love and of joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control that I did not have in myself. Uh, I saw people had something going on in them that was not going on in me. I know now that what I was seeing then was what the Bible calls the fruit of the spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself, had filled these people's lives and brought about this amazing character in them. And that's what I was seeing. And I was drawn to that. Um, Because at that point in my life, um, what was going on inside of my character was not pretty. I I promise you this. This is not me... Um, exaggerating. I was a selfish, cynical, angry, hard-bitten, cheating, lying human being. I, I, I got along with people okay. 
I made my way in the world okay, but inside my life, if you could have taken a, a camera and looked at the nature of my character, that's what you would have been seeing. Insecurity, pride, anger, envy, lust, greed, uh, lack of self-control, the anti-fruit of the spirit. This was me. This was the dominating thing in my life. Oh, I dressed it up pretty nicely on the outside, right? I had to be in social company, so I, I prettified it. I spun it. But the reality of my life was that I was lacking in all of the character elements that I saw in these other people. And I vacillated in those days between having an ambition of being king of the world or an international assassin so I could just kill the people I didn't like. I mean, honestly, that was my, that was my ambition uh, back when I was about 18 years old. Um, now, my character has changed a little bit over the years. Uh, now I just bore people to death. Uh, um, and what happened was this process of justification happened. I got to this place in my life where I, 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 uh, the power of God's spirit touched my heart and I was convicted of the fact that I, I was a sinner. I, I was lost. I was, not make, I was not building a life that I could hold up as a good life. And I, there was no chance that if there really was a holy God that I could ever go to him and say, hey, look at me. Let me into heaven because I'm such a, such a great guy. Right? And I knew I needed God. And I prayed for his forgiveness. And I asked him just to lead me the next step, even though there were so many things I didn't understand about Christianity or God. I had so many doubts. But that process of justification sort of reconnected me. That realigned me with God. And, uh, and I began to grow. And as that connection got established, the, the, the process of sanctification began in me. Right? the life of the vine began to flow through me, the branch, and it began to produce his fruit in my life um, and, and, and in ways that were really an improvement. Um, and I know you look at me now and you think, boy, that's not that impressive, but trust me, it was worse. <laughs> I love what Martin Luther King says on this subject. Dr. King says, you know, look at me. And you know, Dr. King was a flawed man uh, and he knew that. And he said, I, 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 I'm, I, know, I may not be the man um, I want to be. I may not be the man I should be. I may not be the man I'm going to be. But thank God Almighty, I'm not the man I once was. And that's, that's my prayer too. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not that guy that I once was. Um, I think my story, maybe your story, is a little bit like um, the tale of Eustace one of the characters in C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia. Maybe some of you know Eustace's story. Um, Eustace was a sniveling, selfish, backstabbing kid. I mean, there's just no way to go easy on that, right? He was a weak-willed, uh, spineless kind of character in a lot of ways, so unbelievably selfish. But, but the great Lion King, Aslan, this is where Disney got the idea, by the way. It was from C.S. Lewis. The great king, Aslan, in, in the Narnia Chronicles, draws Eustace to himself. And that alignment happens. He gets connected to the vine. And it begins to, to, to unfold changes in the character of Eustace over time. 
a glorious magic, as, as Lewis puts it, begins to work its way out in, in the life of Eustace. And this is how Lewis puts it. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of these I shall not notice. For the cure had begun. Has the cure begun for you? Is the question I want to pose today. Have you gotten connected to the vine? Have you gotten re-justified, reconnected, realigned? Have you admitted, believed, committed? Has that crucial step been taken? And if so, are you close enough in an ongoing way with God that uh, his power is moving out through you, uh, through through your branches and bearing that different kind of fruit in your life? Would other people who've known you for a while be able to describe the changes they've seen? Uh, In other words, as our high school students put it, have you goyo? Have you gotten over yourself? Are you getting over yourself? Because like Eustace, like me, it's a lifelong process, this sanctification, this being made holy and holier still. And, and, And if you don't know the answer to that question, you know, ask somebody who knows you really well what they've noticed about you. Now, what still needs work in you? Bring a, a piece of uh, paper and, and bring more paper than you think you need. Because somebody really close to you could probably help you if they told you everything that they see. So the question I want to ask you is, is there anything we can do to advance this curative process? And it's really important for me to stress that God is the major actor in this. It is his power that's at work. Okay? You don't have to white knuckle it. It's his power that's going to transform you and me if we stay connected to him. But there are things we can do to cooperate with his power. And I want to talk about that before we go today. If you want to accelerate the sanctification process in yourself, then first of all, Make sure you're taking steps to deepen your communion with Christ. Okay? The communion is that connection point I've been talking about between the branch and the vine. Make sure you're, you're taking whatever steps you can to deepen that communion with Christ. What would that look like? Uh, what would that look like? Well, for some people, worship is one of the most powerful ways that they build communion with God. Uh, you know, the average person... We estimate in America today, uh, who, who is a churchgoer, attends 1.7 times a month. So maybe one of the times, one of the things you could do would be to up it to 2.7 times a month. You just make sure you're in this place of communion with God more consistently. I was talking before the service with uh, one of the great guys that's part of our congregation's life, and, and he, he has found that one of the ways he can deepen his communion with Christ is to have a daily devotional. And he showed me the one that he just bought. He bought this great guide for couples to use at home. And I was just excited about taking this home and using this on a daily basis with his wife. You know, stop by the, the, the grow center in our commons after worship and we'll give you materials for, for deepening that communion, for, um, for, for practicing spiritual disciplines that can help keep that connection uh, really tight. Um, secondly, uh, do life in close community, will you? 
Do life in close community. Communion and community are two of the most powerful ways we open up the channel for God to move in our lives. Um, You've heard me say this before. We grow in groups best. Uh, That's where we, we grow best. The Bible says that it was when the disciples were all together in one place that the Holy Spirit came and turned this bunch of cowards who were hiding in an upstairs room, afraid of the authorities, into the force that changed the Roman Empire and altered the course of of civilization. Uh, It was when they were all together that the power of God came and moved in their midst. We read on further in Acts chapter 2, other uh, descriptions of this. We're told that they were all, the believers stayed together. They shared things in common. Uh, we're told that, that every day they continued to meet together. They broke bread in their homes and they ate with glad and sincere hearts. They had a, a life of togetherness that was more than just sitting in the room. It was, a, it was a shared life. Do you have a group of people beyond your family? That's a crucial start, but beyond your family with whom you have a really shared life. They know your story. They know your secrets. They know your struggles. They know how to pray for you. They know how to, to, to challenge you and admonish you in ways that are helpful to you. We're told in Colossians chapter 3, let the message of Christ dwell among you, and it's a plural you, richly as you teach and admonish one another. As you're in doing life together, we make far more uh, progress repairing what's wrong and moving toward what's right uh, when we're with people who are modeling great character, when we're rubbing up against people that are further along the journey than we are, and we're with people who love us enough to tell us the truth and to encourage us and to challenge us where we need it. If you don't have a close community like that, Uh, Again, stop it by the commons, go to the growth center today, and we'll help you find one. Uh, They they exist, and we can help you even create a new one. Um, Pursue communion, pursue close community. These are two ways that we enter into the life of sanctification. Robert McAfee Brown once observed, it is probably more appropriate to speak of becoming a Christian than of being one. It is probably more appropriate to think of a lifelong journey than just kind of a moment that I got saved. Salvation is a lifelong process. It takes a daily intentional investment of yourself uh, to keep that connection strong, to become really a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, Harv Ostike, who was a wonderful youth worker with Young Life on the Lower East Side of New York, used to say to young converts, don't tell me you're a Christian. I'll tell you. We'll tell you when we see the fruit being born in your life. It's a lifelong journey. And I think that's why my old mentor, Lou Smeads, marvelous old ethicist from Fuller Seminary, says that while we're waiting for God to complete this lifelong process, while we're waiting for God to do that, he said it always helps to practice a little creative hypocrisy. And that's my third recommendation for you today. Practice a little creative hypocrisy. There's a story told. It's a legend actually of a man who fell in love with a beautiful woman. The man himself was a scoundrel. Okay. He was a Dan Meyer, right? He was a George Wright. He was a Eustace, 
But he fell in love with this woman who was beautiful on the inside as well as on the outside. And he knew there was no chance that somebody as glorious as that was going to be interested in a guy like him. I mean, she'd figured him out in about five minutes. There was no way he was making any progress with her. And so he devised a scheme. He found himself the mask of a righteous man and he put it on him. And he affixed it tightly at the back, at the back, and he went about with the woman now. Uh, she impressed by the beauty of his, of his visage, right? While the others who were watching this, who knew this guy's real history, they're furious, right? And they can stand this no longer. And so after a long while, they finally burst into the room where this, this faker is sitting with the, this wonderful woman and they pull him aside and they throw him to the ground and they rip off the mask and these gasps of shock go up all over the room for there on the ground where there had been the face of a scoundrel. They now saw the shining face of a saint of someone who had been transformed What masks do you suppose George Wright put on over the years? Think how he had to to behave as if he were an honest man. How he had to work at trying to be one. If he hoped to blend in and not be caught, not to make a mistake that would lead to his capture again. I think how he must have strained to appear kind and compassionate to other people when that wasn't the truth about him. Maybe going to church when he first walked in that church was just a pose. It was a cover. I'll hide in plain sight, he thought. Maybe that's how it began. I'll just put on the mask. Maybe those acts of service that he did for other people was just another way of deceiving people of maintaining the cover or did his communion with God that happened in church did the community that he enjoyed with other believers in the city of Portugal Did all of those various acts of creative hypocrisy that he practiced for so long, did they unleash a sort of magic in him too? And in the end, did God transform a mere criminal into a saint? I don't know, but this I do know we can find out for ourselves in our own life. We can find out what kind of power God has to bring about life change. So take to heart these final words, if you would, from a saint who was also a scoundrel, actually an accomplice to murder himself one day. St. Paul says, now that you have been freed from sin, the advantage you get is sanctification. And its goal, its end, is to give you eternal life. So continue to work out your salvation, says Paul. Don't just rest there. Keep working with it. Keep working out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God 
It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purposes to the end that you may overcome your character flaws and become day by day more like Jesus. For this one, this, my friends, is the gospel. This is the gospel. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, we thank you that it is your will and desire to give us a life like your son and that you have supplied the very power of your Holy Spirit to sanctify us. So help us firm up the connection through communion and community and acts even of creative hypocrisy that you might complete in us the work that you have begun. For we pray in the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen.